Morning, brothers and sisters. Hope you're in Genesis chapter 25. We have a great passage here, a passage of hope, uh, tremendous hope, even though the passage doesn't look very hopeful. The outward appearance doesn't look very hopeful, but behind the scenes, there is tremendous hope. And we're going to try to pull all that out for us today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you, the one who breathed this word out of his mouth. Father, we thank you for your word. It's life to us and hope and strength. Father, I pray that you would teach us by your spirit today. Father, I pray that you would continue to transform us by your word and by your spirit into the image of Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, please help us. Please change us. Father, I pray for grace to proclaim your truth. Fill me with your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are in Genesis chapter 25. The title of this message is The Hope of God's Election and Promises. The Hope of God's election and promises. As we look at the very beginning of Genesis 25, we see that Abraham also marries Keturah and he has children by by her. We see that Abraham dies at a good old age and is buried by Isaac and Ishmael. And we also see that Ishmael has 12, um, 12 sons, 12 princes of 12 different kingdoms. And what God is showing us here, he's just not just rattling off some information so we'll have some more data to chew on. He is letting us know that he is faithful to keep his promises. To Abraham, if you remember in Genesis chapter 17, verses 4 through 6, he promised that Abraham would be the father of nations. He changed his name from Abram to Abraham. To Ishmael. The son who was not chosen, God was gracious to him. And in Genesis 17, 20, he promised that he would be the father of 12 12 sons, 12 princes. To Sarah, in verse 17, verse 16, um, kings of people shall come from her. And so God is simply recounting here in the first part of Genesis 25 his faithfulness to do what he said he would do in Genesis chapter 17. God is always faithful to carry out his promises for the just and the unjust. And he's shown great kindness to Ishmael in this fact. Also in Genesis 25, uh, we see the weaknesses of the patriarchs accentuated. Now, God has chosen Abraham, and, we're, and, and as we think about things, to really get something done, you've got to have great men and a great lot of men to get the task accomplished. That's the way we think. And yet, as we walk into Genesis 25, can I remove this? Yes, I guess I did. All right. We find there's a problem. The scripture says that Rebekah 
is barren. It's kind of hard to build great nations when you have women who can't have children. It doesn't work, does it? And so we're reminded again of the weakness of the patriarchs. Remember, Sarah had the same problem. And if we look forward into Jacob and the, and the bride he chooses, Rachel, she has what? The same problem. Why is that? Just coincidence? Or is God trying to show us that his promise will be carried out despite the weakness of men? That's the hope we have here, friends. It's not based upon getting the greatest leaders in the world together and getting a great crowd of people together and doing all God said to do. It is that God has promised he's going to carry this out with a ragtag band of people. Abraham's ragtag, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca. And today we're going to see two ragtaggers, Jacob and Esau. So as we look at this list, we have a barren Rebecca. We have Sarah who was barren until 89 years of age. Why did God wait that long for her to have a child? So that all the hope that's in man would be turned to who? God. We need that all the time, don't we? Why does God take to the last moment to answer my prayer? Because our confidence isn't based in him. It's based upon foreseen circumstances that we think are going to work out real well. If you've ever done fundraising, you know how that goes. Well, brother so-and-so, he has a lot of money. He'll give me a good check. And that's why I'm hopeful I'm going to meet my budget. And brother so-and-so doesn't give you anything. How many times in our life is our hope based upon our circumstances instead upon the unchanging God? God takes Abraham and Sarah to the very end of the rope. He's 100 or 99 and she's 89 and she becomes pregnant by the grace of God. The lesson all through scripture is God's kingdom is not ushered in by man's strength. It's ushered in by the power of God. Using weak and sinful men. How about the sinfulness of Abraham? Remember, he risked Sarah twice lying about her as his sister to two kings. Remember, he listened to Sarah and compromised and slept with Hagar. And then we have Ishmael. And then, to top all that off, he wanted God to make Ishmael the chosen seed. We see the sinfulness of Isaac. We're not seeing it yet, but we're going to, as God makes a promise here that the younger will be, will, will rule over the older. And yet when it comes time to bless, guess who Isaac's determined he's going to bless? Isaac's determined he's going to bless Esau. Even though he knew God had said the younger, the older will serve the younger. And why was he going to choose Esau? Because he fixed up a pretty good pot of, stew, of soup with some game he liked. What a spiritual reason that is. And then, of course, we see the sinfulness of these boys. We're going to look at that a little bit today. We keep looking for righteousness. We keep looking for greatness. It's not there. It's not there, is it? 
It's not in the scripture and nor is it in our lives, is it? Brothers and sisters, we are weak people. We're sinful people. But praise God, we've been saved. And by his spirit, he's making us what we weren't for his purposes and for his glory. And finally, we see contrasted the fruitfulness of Ishmael and the fruitlessness of Isaac. Here's Ishmael. He has 12 sons. He already has a great kingdom established. Here's Isaac at 40 when he finally marries. Then we find out that he doesn't have the boys until he's 60. Rebecca is barren for 20 years. But we will give him credit for this. Unlike Abraham, who chose a handmaiden to, to uh, have relations with, to have a son, he prayed. And God answered that prayer. If you're here today and barrenness is a challenge for you, I would encourage you to pray. Pray to God. Pray like you've never prayed before. We had several women in the church I was at in the past who all were having challenges having babies. One of our dear friends who's now missionaries in Uganda, she could not, she had miscarriage, but she never could have a child. Several other ladies in the church were also struggling in this area. And so the idea came about that we would gather these women together and the elders' wives would come and pray over them. The result, every woman who wanted to have a baby had a baby. Even some women, one woman who didn't really care to have any more babies had twins. So, I'm not sure what all that says theologically, but pray, call out to God. All through the story of God's covenant people, we run into our own weakness and our own sinfulness. And what does it cause us, should cause us to do what? Trust God, to call out to God. What is it in your life right now that's, that's causing you weakness or sinfulness or things you can't seem to get around? Have you prayed about it? Have you cried out? Have you acknowledged that he's the one who's going to move on beyond that or it's not going to happen? The reason we don't pray is we don't understand our weakness. We don't understand our sinfulness. And we trust with great confidence our ability to make things happen. May God take away our confidence. May God bring us to our knees that our confidence would only be in him. So what we see is the kingdom starts off weak. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Remember the parable in Matthew 13, 31 and 32? The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and, and sowed in his field. 
It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in, that, in those branches. This is the kingdom. We're watching the kingdom here. We're watching the beginnings of the patriarchs and their small beginnings. And the kingdom of God is like a little mustard seed. But the Bible says it will grow to be the largest tree. As we look around, there's a lot of discouragement, isn't there? But know that we are part of the kingdom, the unshakable kingdom of God, that will continue to grow and expand by the grace and by the power of God. And we are blessed to be part of it. So we see that God is faithful to keep his promises. Second, we see the weaknesses of the patriarchs accentuated. He continues to bring that before our face. And then finally, we're going to look at God's sovereign election displayed. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. So, this is, so we have an encouraging passage. We're also have a passage that's going to test us. This, this passage is going to challenge us in our thinking about God. And none of us at the end of this message are going to completely understand everything about man's responsibility and God's election. But we're going to give it a whirl to see if we can't do better and know more than we did to begin with. In Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, we read this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And to get a hold of this thought and to fit it together with man's responsibility is difficult. So let's try to see what we can do with it. A lot of us here have complained that in the last several elections, we haven't had a good candidate to choose. Do I hear an amen anywhere? Okay. I submit to you that God had no good candidate here between Esau and Jacob. There was no good candidate here to choose from. Why is that the case? Because from the fall of Adam, all mankind has been drastically affected by the fall. His mind, his will, his emotions, his flesh, all of those things have been, have made man to the point where man cannot respond to God. And man, if we're left to ourselves, will continue to grow into greater and greater evil and wickedness, which of course brought us to the first destruction of the world by the flood, by Adam, in which God told them every thought they had was on evil all the time. This is the result of the fall. You and I have been affected by the fall. This is why our natural response is sinful, not righteous. And so here God has two sons. Now it's easy to understand why we chose Isaac over Ishmael. Because Ishmael was from the, from the maidservant. And Isaac was from Sarah. So it's easy to understand how Isaac is chosen over Ishmael because Abraham and Sarah produced, by God's grace, Isaac. Now we walk into a situation where the patriarch Isaac has two sons, both from the same mom, 
both in the womb at the same time. And God is going to bring election straight up at us to where we're going to have to look at it. That's what, that's what a lot of this passage is about. Esau was only concerned with the present and with what could meet his fleshly desires. Let's read that little part again on 29 through 34. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me have some of that red stuff. That's what Edom means, red stuff or red stew. For I'm exhausted. He's already told us that twice now, hadn't he? Okay. Therefore, his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Talk about dramatic. We don't ever have any children like that, do we? I won't even answer that question. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. What was the birthright? The birthright was this. That he would inherit a double portion of his father's inheritance. Isaac was an incredibly wealthy man. And Esau, being firstborn by a few seconds, had the birthright. He got a double portion of the inheritance. He was considered the master over that household. He was the ruling master over that household. That's what the birthright was. And the birthright had a spiritual dynamic in that this would be the line from which the Messiah would come. Huge. Double portion of the inheritance. Ruler over the household. The line from which the Messiah would come and the spiritual blessing would come. And he gives it away for a bowl of stew. Not a noble man. Completely focused on his own flesh. Focused on his own desires. Pampered and babied. I'm exhausted. Really, what did you do all day to be so exhausted you would give your birthright away? Are you not telling me you could go next to the next tent over and find some food somewhere? Or whip up something yourself? Or you're a great hunter, go kill something and eat it there. The Bible tells us in, in Hebrews, he was a godless man. He was godless. He had no, the spiritual, there was no spiritual desire within him. Now we look at Jacob. Jacob means heel grabber or heel holder. Means deceiver. And he clearly lives up to his name. He wants the birthright. And he'll take it however he can get it. And he'll first manipulate his, his pampered big brother by 15 seconds or 30 seconds or a minute and a half, how, old, how much older he was, in order to get the birthright. He's not walking by faith. He's not trusting God. So here we are. Are we, are we going to choose these men based upon their better qualities? We'll talk about that in a minute. 
Election has already been going on in the scriptures. Let's look at the history of it. Genesis 6. Here we are in Genesis 6. We have this wonderful dialogue here, or this wonderful account by God. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil only and always. And the Lord was sorry that he had made him, made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. That's a pretty clear understanding of how God views us. And the Lord was sorry that he made man. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then we have verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Praise God for this but. This is where it's all going. Everything is going to be destroyed. But Noah found favor in God's eyes. Now, we can look at this two ways. We can look at it from a humanistic perspective and say, thank God for Noah. There's one good guy around here. Praise God. Or we can look at it from a biblical perspective. Thank God for God. Thank God for God. Thank God that he showed mercy to Noah. That he didn't treat Noah as his sins deserved. Thank God that even though this man's imperfect, and we'll find out later he's a drunkard, we're going to find that out later on, that God took a weak and imperfect man, and he also was gracious to his children. They all followed him. And they did this huge project and saved mankind by God's grace and God's grace alone. Do you have a humanistic view of the Bible or a theistic view of the Bible? Do you look at all the heroes of the Bible as, oh, boy, God sure was lucky to have them on his side. Whew. Or do you say, what a great God who uses weak and sinful men to accomplish his purposes. With each of the great heroes of the faith, God exposes their sinful side to the reader, doesn't he? Think of all the great heroes of the faith we see in Hebrews 11. We got Noah. He was a hero. He also had a problem with drunkenness. We have Abraham. And his problem was he lied about his wife and he didn't trust God and tried his own plan to create a seed. We have Moses. He had a small little problem with anger where he killed a man. We have Samson and he has a laundry list of problems. Pride, fornication, a vow breaker. We have David the adulterer and the murderer. We have the Apostle Paul watching as saints were killed and giving hearty approval. 
Why does God give us the bad side of these people? So that we understand who's really the glorious one here. So that we understand who the one really is, who, who is making things happen. We see that God chooses Sham. We have Sham, Ham, and Japheth. God chooses Sham. And we see in Hebrews 11, down through that line from verse 10 through 32, the line of Shem moving all the way down to Abraham. God made a choice. We see Abraham in, in Genesis 12, 2 and 3. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless, those, bless you, and, and him who dishonors you I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What an incredible statement. Abraham was chosen by God. Why? We suppose because he had some quality within him of a certain nature that made him attractive to God. Why did God choose Noel? He must have had some quality within him that... That, that made him stand out as the best of the best, of the worst. What about all these other men? God elects Isaac. And there was only other, two other competitors. There was Abraham's servant. Remember? Abraham was, God was promising all these great promises. And Abraham says, I don't have any children. I don't have any children. There's a problem here. All my stuff's going to go to my, my, my head servant here. Chapter 15, verses 2 through 4. And then, of course, we have Ishmael. But God says, no, Ishmael's not the one. No, your servant's not the one. One's going to be born to you that's going to have to be born to you supernaturally. Because this whole venture of saving, a man, saving mankind is supernatural. It can't be done by men. Men are important. Men are, men are the means of proclaiming the gospel. But this thing's going nowhere unless God does it. And then God elects Jacob over Esau. 25 verse 23. And the Lord said to Rebecca, two nations. She was having some problems. First, she couldn't get pregnant. Then she gets pregnant with twins. And they're struggling together within her to the point she's like, what in the world's going on in here? What is this? And the Lord tells her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. There's going to be conflict here between these two peoples. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So God makes this pronouncement. Now the question is, is God just, is God just telling you what's going to happen because he can see the future? Or is he decreeing what will happen? That's the question. And this text doesn't tell us 
which it is. Is it just that he looks forward and goes, oh, I know what's going to happen. It's not going to be good. Or does he make a declaration of who is going to be on top and who's going to be on the bottom? And he makes a declaration that he will make sure it's carried out. Praise God. The Apostle Paul decides to give us a little commentary on this passage. So let's turn to Romans chapter 9. Now the reason for Romans 9 is because we just came out of Romans 8. And Romans 8 talks about how nothing can separate us from the love of God. And yet Jesus, yet Paul's uh, Roman church is going, uh, what about Israel? God made all these promises to Israel. And we're not, Israel didn't really jump on the bandwagon when Jesus came through. Matter of fact, the Jews are pretty much antagonistic to Christ. So if you're saying this is so successful and God's love is so wonderful and that he never loses anybody, what happened to the people over here who are all not on the train? And Paul goes through to explain election. He explains why they're not all on the train. Okay? So let's start with verse 9. Well, he goes back to verse 8. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So he says, you're not just going to look at Israel and say the offspring of Abraham are all going to be saved. Those are the children of the flesh. No, there's within Israel, there are children of the promise. Some of the descendants of Abraham are going to be saved because God made a declaration before the foundations of the earth. Okay? So verse 9, for this, is, for, for this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So there's the first election, and that is who? Isaac. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man... Our forefather, Isaac. Verse 11. If you, want, if you want a definition of election, here it is. In the scripture. Though they were not yet born. Okay? They hadn't been born yet. <clears throat> and had done nothing good or bad. They were just in the womb. They had done nothing good or bad. They came from who? The same parents. They were, as e they were equal in every way. Same parents. Same womb. Same time. Not born. No good or bad. 
in order that God's purpose of election might continue. In other words, God is going to elect. He already elected one of them before the foundations of the earth. Not because of works, so not good or bad, he's going to hammer it home again. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. How is this person going to be chosen? Because of their works? No. Because they were good or bad? Nope. Because God chose. So the declaration in, in Genesis twenty-five, twenty-three is not a looking forward and just predicting what's going to happen because he knows the future. This is a declaration of what will happen because he has made a sovereign choice to elect one over the other. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob, I loved, and Esau, I hated. What's our response to that? That's not fair. Paul anticipates that response. Look what he says in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And Paul says, by no means. By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 15 is saying this. I am God. I will be merciful on whom I choose to be merciful. Did he have a good choice between Esau and Jacob? No, they were both scoundrels. They're both bad news. Yet God, out of his mercy, chose Jacob. And we see Jacob's scoundrelness continue, don't we? As he tricks his father and does all this and that. <clears throat> and finally, God gets a hold of him in a wrestling match. Remember that? And dislocates his hip and changes his name from heel grabber to Israel. God is salvation. Now, Jacob's story is like all of our stories. If you're a believer, you were a scoundrel. You were sinful and you had no desire to come to God. And yet, before the foundations of the earth, God made a decision to choose you before you existed. I mean, we're talking beyond just the womb. We're talking... Way back. And he is not only going to choose you, he's going to save you and he's going to change you. Praise God. And that's what he did for Jacob. God has the freedom to do what he wants within the confines of his character. And the confines of his law.
There's a lot more here to read. We're not going to spend forever in Romans 9. That could be two or three messages. So, John 1, 13. People become sons of God as they receive Christ. Verse 13 says, Who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How are people saved? John 1.13 says, by the will of God. Not the will of the blood, not the will of the flesh, not the will of man, the will of God. So we're looking here at God's sovereignty and election and man's responsibility. The Bible teaches both. God's sovereignty and election, God's man's responsibility. They run side by side. Okay? They are a divine paradox. Two statements that seem to be contradictory in our mind, but are not in God's. Now, we've already dealt with a few of these, haven't we? Remember, God said he is one, but he's in what? Three persons. What do you mean? One does not equal three. I mean, I'm a math teacher. I know these things. One does not equal three. How's that work? God says it works. God says he's one God in three persons. What do we do with that? What are we going to do if we can't completely figure it out? Are we just going to throw it out? No, we just have to go, we have to declare both of them to be true, don't we? God is one. But there's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Can you completely explain that? No, you can't. Can anybody completely explain that? No, we can't. But we believe they're both true, correct? All right. How about this one? Jesus is man. Jesus is God. Do we believe those both are true? Yes, we do. In your mind, how does that all fit together? It's a little fuzzy there sometimes, isn't it? But we believe it's true because the scripture what? Declares it, doesn't it? So the same is true with God's sovereign election and man's responsibility. The scripture teaches both. Therefore, we have to deal with them. We can't just lean heavy on the sovereignty side and forget the responsibility side. And we can't lean heavily on the responsibility side and forget the what? The sovereignty side. We've got to somehow deal with them and and we're not going to all have it finished by the time this sermon's over with. Okay? You won't have it finished by the time you lay your head in the grave. Okay? Just an encouraging word there for you. That's what I'm here to do, just encourage. All right? God calls us to wrestle with these realities and maintain both as true, even if we don't completely understand Okay? All right. God's sovereignty. (coughs) 
I think I'm going to need a little more of this before it's over with. God's sovereignty and election does not take away man's responsibility. Did you hear that? God's sovereignty and election does not take away man's responsibility to believe and repent. It doesn't take man's responsibility away to proclaim the gospel and call people to salvation. It doesn't take any responsibility he's given you away from you. Also, man's responsibility does not take away God's sovereignty in election. That you have to believe and repent doesn't in any way affect God's sovereignty in election. May I say God's sovereignty in election is the primary cause. Man's responsibility is the Secondary cause. Both are essential for God's will to be done in salvation or any other area of life. Child training, whatever it is. Giving. So we go to our house and we walk into a room and we turn on the switch. And what happens? The light comes on. Is it true that because of my choice to flip this switch, the light came on? Yes. Is there another reason the light came on? Yes. Years ago, there was an electrician who wired the house in such a way that when you flip the switch... The light came on. Who was the primary cause of the light coming on? The electrician. Who was the secondary cause of the light coming on? You were. Is the light going to come on if you don't flip the switch? No. Is the light going to come on if the electrician hadn't ran the wire to that switch? No. Both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are required to accomplish God's will. That's a simple illustration. Let's think about a couple of important points to remember from our Romans 9 passage. Point one, if God gave all of us justice, we would all spend eternity in hell. That's, that's the reality. Everyone deserves to go to hell. Two, if God chooses to be merciful to some and not to all, he is both just and what? Merciful. Three, God has the sovereign right to do with us as he pleases. And he uses the example of the what? The potter and the clay. We sing that song all the time. He can do with his creation what he wants. 
within the confines of his character and his what? Law. The soul that sins will surely what? Die. If God doesn't show mercy, if God didn't show mercy to you and I and elect us, nobody would be sitting here today. None of us would. There wouldn't be a church. If God didn't elect, no one would be saved. Because of who we were, because of the fall. We're all dead men spiritually because of the fall. Nobody understands what happened at the fall. The fall was like an atomic bomb that destroyed everyone spiritually. So that Romans says, there's no one who desires God. There's no one who fears God. There's no one who seeks God. If that's happening, what does that tell us? God's doing a work for that to take place. And four, salvation is offered to all men. And all men will be judged by what they do with Christ. We, we, we lay out salvation for everyone for, for a couple of reasons. One, God commands us. And two, we don't know who his elect are and who his elect aren't. Let's look at some scriptures about man's responsibility. John 3.18 Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That clearly, the responsibility is believe. And if you don't believe, you're already condemned. If you're here today and you don't believe in Jesus, you're already condemned. Your only hope is to repent and believe and find faith in Christ. Romans 10.1, Paul, we see Paul praying this prayer. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for, the, for Israel is that they may be saved. Paul is praying for these people that God will save them. He's taking the responsibility to pray for them. Romans 10.13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Romans eleven twenty. Listen to this. He's talking to his Gentile audience, and they. He says he's talking about this tree. He's talking about that Israel is broken. They're, they're broken off because of their unbelief, and they and the Gentiles have been grafted in because of their belief. And so he tells them um, <clears throat> that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you, are stand, you stand fast through faith. He says, you're standing because of faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Where's the responsibility rest there? On them. 
believe, fear. Don't be proud and think that you're not, you're invincible. Okay, let's look at a scripture that talks about both. John six thirty seven. Listen to this scripture. The first part talks about God's election. The second part talks about man's responsibility. John six thirty seven. Here they are sitting side by side. John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Who are these people? Those are the ones he's chosen. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. First emphasis is what God is doing. The Father sending people to Jesus. The other one is calling to the people to come to me. And be saved. Are those a contradiction? They may seem like it. They're not. They're not at all. Okay. Let's look at election verses. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Why were you saved? Because God chose you to be the first fruits through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. We also see responsibility there, don't we? They believed in the truth. Why did they believe? Because they were chosen. Revelation 13, 8, Revelation 17, 8. I'll just read 13.8. And he's talking about all the people who are going to worship the beast. This is in Revelation. He says, And all who dwell on earth will worship him, the beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. The book of life was written before creation began. Wow. If your name wasn't there and the beast is on the scene, guess what? You're going to be following the beast. You're going to be worshiping the beast. Same is true in verse 17, verse 8. Second Timothy 2.10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Notice in this passage, these elect people may or may not have even come to faith in Christ yet. Paul is out there proclaiming the gospel for the purpose of who? Those that God has selected that they might be swept in and saved. Let's look at the benefits of the sovereign election. So they both sit side by side. Election, sovereignty. God elected based upon his own choice, not based upon the goodness of anyone, as we see in Romans 9. They had done nothing good or bad. They were still in the womb. They came from the same parents. 
God made a choice. Why? Because he's God. God's sovereign election. And because, not because he's God, because he's also merciful. What if he had chosen not to elect anyone? What if he had chosen that that he would elect no one and go after them? It would be a terrible place here and there. God's sovereign election eliminates boasting. This is point one under the benefits of sovereign election. Election is not by family. That's what the Jews thought. Remember Jesus gets into discussion with the Jews in John chapter 8. And the leaders are over there giving him a hard time. And they're trying to say he's not really, the, his, his father's probably not Adam, Abraham. Because he, you know, they don't know who your father is because you're illegitimate. And they're going on all this discussion and Jesus said, I know who I am. And they say, oh, we're, we're, our father's Moses. And he says, oh no, Moses is, Moses is your father. Neither is Abraham your father. Guess who he tells them is their father? The devil. Look at that passage. He doesn't say, your father's the devil. Repent and believe. You'd think he would say that. Repent and believe. He states it as a fact that is not going to change to those men. So sovereign election is not because of family. It's not because of Abraham. It's not because of religious group or church. Some of us here may think we're going to be saved because we're in church and we're with our family and our family believes in Jesus and therefore we're kind of riding along on those coattails. Every person has to choose Christ. Election is not by works. Election is not by anything meritorious in you. I'm just kind of a better person than everybody else. Really? Don't think so. Election is by the sovereign choice of God alone. Why are you here? He chose you. That is wonderful news. That is mind-blowing news. You are here because he elected you. If you're a believer, if you're a believer, point two on the benefits God's sovereign election encourages love for God. How can you not love a God who, who you, did, you weren't able to get to him in any way, shape, or form? He came and rescued you. Because you see, we'll get into this in a minute. Okay. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. What was his first sign of love for us? He elected us. When? Before the foundations of the world. In Malachi 1, the people are asking God, does he love them? Malachi 1, verse 2, God says, I have loved you. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob and Esau I have hated. How do we know he loved Israel? Because he chose Jacob. 
Love involves a choice. It always involves a choice. Three, God's sovereign election makes God's love personal. It makes it personal. So imagine we're here at the marriage conference. We're having a great time. And one of the young men in the church decides to go do a Martin Luther thing and put a statement on the front door out there. That's one violation of our, 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 our building code, so be careful not to do that. But, and it says, looking for a young woman to marry, please apply here. Is that romantic? Is that show love? Some people think that that's what God did with Jesus. Here's Jesus. Trust him. Come to him. No. What would have been loving would have been to have chosen a young lady in the church and prayed and prayed and prayed. And then at the right time to have gone to her and pursued her to be his. That is what love is. Love involves a choice. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, we were chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. For what purpose? To be holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. It was his choice. It was God's choice. Here's Spurgeon on election. In the very beginning, when this great universe lay in the mind of God, like unborn forests in the acorn cup, long ere the echoes awoke the solitudes before the mountains were brought forth and long ere the light flashed through the sky, God loved his chosen creatures. Before there was any created being, when the ether was not fanned by an angel's wing, when space itself had, had not an existence, when there was nothing save God alone, even then, in that loneliness of deity and in that deep quiet and profundity, his bowels moved with love for his chosen. Their names were written on his heart and then were they dear to his soul. You have been loved, if you're a believer, before the foundations of the world by God. I can't even fathom that. What kind of love is that? Before he spoke anything into existence, he elected a people that he would rescue. What great love is that? For God's sovereign election encourages love for all mankind. As he chose us and went after us, we have an obligation to go after everyone else. We have an obligation to go after our brothers and sisters in Christ 
and encourage them and if they drift away to go after them. We have a responsibility to go after those who are lost in the hopes that God might be gracious and might save them. This is where that love comes from. From the love that we have experienced before the foundations of the world. God's love is not based on our lovableness. And neither should our love for other mankind be because they're lovable. But because they're made in the image of God. And they need to be rescued from sin and brought to Christ. First John 4, 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a what? A liar. Number five, God's sovereign election encourages evangelism. Listen to this. In Acts 18, 9 and 10, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. He was there in Corinth. He says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I have, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. Why do we have, why do we have confidence to go evangelize? Because there are people in our city, there are people around us that God has chosen before the foundations of the earth. And we need to go after them. And we need to ask God to bring them across our path. So why was Paul sitting in Corinth? Because there were a bunch of other elect people that had not gotten the gospel yet. And what's the beautiful part about this is we proclaim the gospel to all men because we don't know who is elect and who is not. Number six. Also, Romans 1.16 in that same, that last one. Number six, God's sovereign election gives us a sure hope that God will accomplish his grand rescue of a people for Christ. You know, I love going on vacations. And I love when we start talking about vacation. And we're looking at all the different places we can go, which is all in about a 200-mile radius. Anyway, I'm just joking. But you, you, you have, you, you, the first thing to start a vacation, you have to do what? You have to choose a place. And then from that point on, once that's decided upon, you go about making all the reservations and all the plans you need to play to secure that vacation and make it what? Happen. This is what God has done for us. God first elected us. And then he called us and he secured us by the spirit of God. Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. So it started with being foreknown. Foreknown is election. This is not just knowing people in, in some, this is a personal, intimate knowledge of these people. He foreknew, he predestined. 
He predestined, he called. He called, he justified. He justified, he sanctified, and he glorified. Everyone he foreknew, he glorified. Everyone he foreknew, he called. Everyone he called was justified. Everyone he justified, he glorified. Does that not give you hope, brothers and sisters? That's tremendous hope. James Montgomery Boyce. All is of grace. All that you are, all that you will become, all that you have, all that you will ever attain, all is due to God's grace. Above all, salvation is due entirely to God's grace so that it depends on nothing in human beings. And what he's saying by that, he's not saying human beings should not repent and believe. He's not saying that. He's saying that God's grace on them is not because of something good within them. That's what he's trying to say. Has everybody here who's a believer repented and believed? You should have if you're his. Who we are today is because of grace. Who you're becoming is because of grace. Putting off sin and putting on righteousness is because of grace. Seeing your need for Christ was of grace. Being able to repent and believe was because of what? Grace. This is why we're told, for by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one can boast. It's all of grace, the faith, the salvation, all those things. This is why we have great hope. This is why this passage that looks gloomy has great hope. Because the God of the universe is electing people that he is going to save and move forward in this great throng as he builds and he reaches every people, tongue, tribe, and nation. That all men may know Christ and may bow the knee and worship him. Sovereign election, human responsibility. They're not enemies. They're friends. For the glory of God. Dr. Michael Bar Barrett, one last quote and we're done. Shame on us for making this doctrine, the doctrine of election, a matter of controversy among God's people. When the Bible always makes it a matter of confidence and consequent duty. I want to encourage you to rest in God's eternal and unchangeable purpose in election as solid ground upon which to stand secure. What's your security? Your faith? It's important. What's the, what's the ground of this? It is God's sovereign election and choice and plan and promise and oath that he will carry this thing out to the end. That gives us great hope, brothers and sisters. Understanding it will remain beyond our comprehension, but believing it should be our joy. Remembering that God never commands sin a sinner to determine their election before they come to faith in Christ. No one needs to figure out if you're elect. You just need to repent and come to Jesus. 
And that's what you're to tell people. Repent and come to Jesus. You don't have somebody walk over into your house and get ready to flip the switch. Well, wait a minute before you flip that switch. Let me explain to you how this thing all works. How these wires all come down here and hook together and all this and that. Let me tell you about how that works. No. You just say, go over there and turn the light on. Call people to repent and believe in Jesus. And rejoice that you've been chosen before the foundations of the earth. You are personally loved by God. Father, we come before you. Thank you for your precious word. And oh, Father, may we rejoice that your election and man's responsibility are side by side. We rejoice that your election makes our responsibility effective. Well, Father, thank you for your great salvation. Please, by your spirit, take your people farther than what I'm able to do. In Jesus' name.